It is finished, amen? The gospel of Jesus Christ is the creed of every true Christian. It is the story, of course, of the Messiah, the Savior of the world, which means for the follower of Christ, it is the story that defines our faith, that anchors our hope and informs every single aspect of our lives. And at the very center of that story is the death and resurrection of Jesus, His atoning death on the cross that paid for our sins, and His resurrection three days later, which validated that work on the cross, proving that He was who He said He was, the Son of God, of course, and that He'd done what He said He would do, conquering death and the grave. It is a story unlike any other, with the final chapter, His second coming, yet to be fulfilled. And so this is not just a story that happened a long time ago that we believe in. It is actually an ongoing story that we're currently living in as it continues to unfold because the lives of every one of us who belong to Him, including all those who uh, ever will belong to Him in the future, are a vital part of that story. And yet, none of that means anything whatsoever if the part in the middle isn't true. Because the merit, the the weight, the legitimacy of the entire story of the gospel hinges on the reality of the resurrection. The validity of our entire faith rests upon the reality of the resurrection. So our faith in Jesus, our hope for the future, our purpose for living the way that we do as Christians is inextricably linked to the resurrection. Because look, if Jesus didn't pass from death to life, then neither did we. And so like the rest of the gospel, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not just a story that we believe in. It is a reality that we live in. It has to be. Otherwise, we're not following Jesus Christ. We're simply following a religion just like all of the other religions where people follow the teachings of religious leaders who died and stayed dead. Right? As Christians, we aren't following a religion. We're following a person. And yet if that person is dead, just like the rest of the religious leaders throughout history, then all we're actually doing is fooling ourselves and wasting each other's time. That's why we take the time that we do each year to focus on this one part of the gospel story, the resurrection, because listen, without it, we're all wasting our time. Without the resurrection, our faith means nothing. Jesus' teachings simply become the ramblings of a religious lunatic and the church becomes a colossal waste of energy and human resources. By the way, people who say that Jesus was a good teacher but not the Son of God have either never actually read the Bible or they're simply not being intellectually honest because all you have to do is read just the red letters in the New Testament, just the bits where Jesus was actually talking And it doesn't take long at all to figure out that he was either the son of the living God or he was completely crazy. You simply cannot make an intelligent, coherent argument based on biblical scripture that Jesus was something in between those two extremes. And so for those of us who believe that he is who he says he is and that he did what he said he would do, every single aspect of our lives is affected and informed and shaped by the resurrection. It has to be. Think about it this way. If your best friend uh, or maybe your spouse 
died and you went to the funeral and the graveside service and you watched them being lowered into the ground, buried in a casket. And then three days later, you decide to go and visit that gravesite to pay your respects to that best friend or to your spouse, except when you get there, you, you find that the gravesite has been dug up and is now empty. Now think of the utter despair, the hurt, the confusion that you would feel looking at that empty grave. But then as you're walking back home, completely devastated by this unlikely turn of events, your best friend or your spouse walks up beside of you full of life and in perfect health. Now without question, that event, would define every single day of the rest of your life. You would never not talk about it. You would never pretend it didn't happen. You would never try to distance yourself from that reality. It wouldn't even matter to you that it made some people uncomfortable every time you talked about it. I'm telling you, you wouldn't care one bit what anyone else ever thought about the fact that you believed it to be true because you would know that it was the truth and that's all that would matter to you. Right? The reality that your best friend or your spouse was dead and then came back to life three days later, that would shape the rest of your life no matter what, else, uh, what anyone else ever thought. Well, listen, for the Christian, the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ should shape every single day of our lives. We should never not talk about it. We should never pretend it didn't happen. We should never distance ourselves from that reality, even if it makes some people uncomfortable every time we talk about it. Because it's not just a story that we believe in. It is a reality that we're living in, the single most important reality of them all. The fact that the same Jesus who was crucified 2,000 years ago is alive today. And look, if that is not true, then what we believe as Christians actually means nothing. But if it is true, then what we believe as Christians means everything. C.S. Lewis once said, Christianity of false is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Which, of course, begs the question, why then are there so many professing Christians moderately committed to Christ? Well, maybe it's because we've believed the story of the resurrection without allowing the reality of it to actually shape and inform our lives, to change the way that we see God and the way we see ourselves in light of His plan for this world and how, of course, we fit into that plan. Because, look, once you come to grips with the fact that the Spirit of God is actually trying to speak to you every day of your life, that he's trying to lead you where you need to go every day of your life, that he's trying to give you what you need to accomplish his will for you every day of your life. Once you reckon with the reality that he is in fact alive and constantly, unceasingly active in your life on your behalf, you begin to listen for and pay attention to his voice. Once you reckon with the fact that he's alive and working in your life, you begin to follow his leading, you begin to receive all that he has for you. And then everything about how you live your life changes dramatically. It has to, which is exactly what happened, uh, by the way, in the lives of his first disciples. Once they reckoned with the reality of the resurrection, everything about how they lived changed. In fact, uh, in fact the difference in their lives before and after the resurrection changed the world. But that means living 
in the reality of, not just belief in, but the reality that Jesus Christ is in fact alive and well today, which of course also separates him from every other religious leader or teacher the world has ever known, because unlike every other religious leader who's ever promised anything eternal to their followers, Jesus is the only one who got up out of his grave after three days and made good on every single promise. And I know that most of you here today probably believe that, which is important, of course. But the question is, have you allowed the reality of his resurrection to invade your very life, your thoughts, your dreams, your plans, your purpose, your choices, your everyday life? And, and if not, then maybe it's time you had a new encounter with the risen Christ. Because I'm telling you, once you come to grips with the fact that the Spirit of God is alive and active in your life today and you begin to listen to His voice and follow His leading and receive the gifts that He's trying to give you, I'm telling you, everything, everything changes. It's exactly what we see with His disciples. Again, they, they knew Jesus' story better than anyone, right? They lived it firsthand. They certainly believed in Him, and yet... The moment he was accused and then crucified, they ran away as fast as they could from any association they had with him, even though he told them numerous times that he would be killed and then rise from the dead after three days. We see that in Matthew 16, 21, Mark 8, 31, Mark 9, 31, Mark 10, 34, and yet even after finding the tomb empty, they were still in hiding. It wasn't until after he revealed himself until after they encountered him that the reality of his resurrection set in, which is why every aspect of their lives changed so profoundly to the point that their lives after the resurrection were completely unrecognizable in comparison to their lives before the resurrection. And so today we're going to walk through that story together from his death to his resurrection, and I want us to pay attention as we go to how the reality of who he was and what he did, the, the fact that he came back from the dead, how that utterly changed everything about the way his disciples lived their lives then and how it should utterly change the way that we live our lives today. So let's pick the story up at John chapter 18. As Jesus and his disciples made their way by foot from Galilee to Jerusalem through Samaria and Bethany and Bethpage, they've shared their final meal together, and now they're about to cross the Kidron Valley from the great city itself as the masses of people were flocking uh, to Jerusalem for the Passover, to share the Passover meal. And so Jesus and his disciples are now retreating from the city to the garden at Gethsemane. We'll begin by reading the first two verses of John 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Jesus and his disciples leave the city to head out to the garden, where they would often meet to rest and pray. And if you pay attention to the details given by John here, even this short journey to the garden by Jesus and his disciples is heavy with prophetic significance and it demonstrates actually quite powerfully the intention of Jesus to fulfill his calling, knowing well and good the cost to him personally and what he was about to do. John says they crossed the brook Kidron. 
If you read that in the ancient Greek, the brook Kidron is described as a chimeros, or in the Arabic, it's called a wadi. It's a storm runlet, a dry gulch that only had water in it during the rainy season. So it was a dry creek bed, basically, that acted as a storm runoff through the Kidron Valley, which Jesus and his disciples had to cross to get to the garden. But this was the afternoon before the Passover, which was when the priests would sacrifice the lambs on the altar of the temple. And the historical records that we have from Jesus' day tell us that as many as 250,000 lambs were slain by hundreds of priests. And so there were drains at the altar areas that would carry the massive quantities of blood from a quarter of a million lambs along with the water used for ritual cleansings down from the city through the otherwise dry brook of Kidron. In fact, the word Kidron itself means black brook or gloomy brook because of its crimson stained banks from the blood that flooded it every year. And so picture this. As Jesus and his disciples make their way to the garden with his death on a Roman cross being imminent, they first had to cross over the brook Kidron, which was flowing to its banks with blood and water. Of course, John 19.34, at Jesus' crucifixion, John says, One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. The prophetic overtones are astounding, which was certainly not lost on Jesus. In fact, if you look through chapter 12 of this gospel and just read the red letters, just read what Jesus said in that one chapter, it becomes undeniably clear that he knew exactly what was coming. The truth is, it's hard to imagine what he must have been thinking and feeling as he crosses over that brook, as the blood and water from those sacrificial lambs flowed through the valley, knowing where God's plan for him was about to lead him. And yet Jesus never rejected the Father's plan for his life. The 19th century English preacher Octavius Winslow said it this way, So completely was Jesus bent upon saving sinners by the sacrifice of himself, He created the tree upon which he was to die and nurtured from infancy the men who were to nail him to the accursed wood. You see, Jesus embraced the reality of his death, and so must we. Yet we much prefer to think about and talk about the other parts of the gospel, don't we? The ones that don't require nearly as much from us, right? The the love of Christ is easy to talk about. The fact that he ate with sinners, that's easy to talk about. The fact that he fed hungry people, that's easy to talk about. His willingness and desire to accept the outcasts of society, all that is easy to talk about. We love to talk about those aspects of the gospel, as we should. And of course, those parts of the gospel are also popular themes in our culture, which is why they're easy for us to talk about. But when when you start talking about the fact that Jesus was mercilessly and brutally tortured, mocked, beaten, crucified. Why? To make atonement for our sin. Well, now that makes people uncomfortable. And we don't like to make people uncomfortable, so we shy away from talking to them about the difficult parts of the gospel. But listen, we have to embrace the reality of the crucifixion if we're going to live in the reality of the resurrection. Because first of all, there's no, there's no resurrection without a crucifixion, right? And secondly, there's no need for either if we're not desperately in need of a Savior because of our own sin. 
This is why those early disciples always told the whole story, and so must we. In Matthew's account of Jesus' trial and execution, he says in chapter 27, verse 26, that Jesus was scourged just before being crucified. A Roman flogging or scourging was a horrifically cruel punishment where those condemned were tied to a post and beaten with a leather whip that was interwoven with pieces of bone and metal, which would tear through the skin and tissue, often exposing the bones and sometimes even the intestines. In fact, uh, in many cases, the flogging itself was fatal. And in this case, the Romans made certain to scourge Jesus nearly to death so that he would not remain alive on the cross after sundown because Jewish custom dictated that crucified bodies had to be taken down before evening, especially before the Sabbath, which began at sundown on Friday. And yet, as horrible as it is, to have to contemplate all that he went through for us, Every single step of that process was a fulfillment of what was prophesied about him in various scriptures throughout the Old and New Testaments leading up to these events. In other words, this is what Jesus came to do for you and for me. In fact, if you keep reading in Matthew 27, verses 27 through 31, he describes how the Roman soldiers stripped Jesus down and put a scarlet robe on his body and pushed a crown of thorns into his scalp. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Matthew 27 29 through 31, Roman soldiers in Jerusalem at this point in history were well known for playing cruel games with condemned prisoners. They would actually often dress the prisoners in these wild costumes. They even had a huge game board that they would place the prisoners on and use them as game pieces. And they'd play these sadistic games to degrade and punish those who were condemned to die. And all the while, Jesus who at any moment could have commanded legions of angels to come and snuff out the life of every one of those who imposed, opposed him instead, freely allowed them to torture him ruthlessly. Why? For you and for me. Because he knew that he could not avoid that part of what he'd come to do for us, and neither can we. We, we cannot glaze over the hard truth about his death a death that only happened because of our own sin, and we cannot ignore the part of his plan for our own lives that requires us to die to ourselves. We must embrace this aspect of the gospel because, look, if people do not understand the wages of their sin, then they will never understand their need for a Savior. You cannot lead people into a true understanding of the gospel by only talking about the love of Jesus for this world. We must confront the reality of his horrific death because of our own sin and then our own subsequent need to die to ourselves, to repent of that sin and to live for him instead of living for ourselves. That may not be a popular message. In fact, it never has been. But it is a reality that we must embrace. Let's keep reading. John 18, verses 3 through 9. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrays him, 
who betrayed him was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have not lost one. So Judas gathers a band of soldiers. These were Roman soldiers and some temple police from the chief priests and Pharisees as well. In the original Greek language, the band of soldiers is described as a spira. Uh, that constituted a Roman cohort, which was a thousand men. Uh, scholars say in practice, a Roman cohort was typically comprised of uh, between 600 and 700 soldiers uh, in, in reality. But when you add in the temple police... It's estimated that there were about a thousand men with lanterns and torches and weapons sent out to capture one man. Hearing this story as a kid growing up, I always pictured about 15 or 20 soldiers with Judas coming to arrest Jesus. Can you imagine the sight and the sound of this mass of soldiers with torches and lanterns, their metal swords and armor clanging together as they approached the garden that evening, a thousand strong must have been a terrifying sight. And part of the reason they sent so many after Jesus, by the way, is because they weren't just concerned about Jesus and his immediate disciples. At this point, he had become very popular with the masses of people. So there was fear of an uprising upon his arrest. So sending out a thousand soldiers would much better prepare the authorities for any potential mob violence, which was always a concern for the Romans during the Passover when, according to uh, the first century scholar Flavius Josephus, over 2,700,000 people crowded into the city. And so a thousand battle-hardened soldiers come seeking to arrest Jesus. And so Jesus steps forward and he asks them, whom do you seek? And when they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth, he responds with the very same words given to Moses by God in Exodus 3.14. When Moses asked the Lord who he should tell the Israelites had sent him. In the ancient Greek, it's the words ego emi, which literally means I am or I am who I am. And the moment Jesus speaks those words revealing his true identity, a thousand battle-hardened soldiers with their lanterns and torches and weapons and armor fall down to the ground. What a sight that must have been. I can't imagine it. It's no wonder that in just a few moments, Peter has the courage to lunge forward into the horde of soldiers and cut the ear off of one of the men. Again, growing up, I used to wonder how Peter could be so courageous in the face of all of these soldiers when just moments later in the face of a servant girl, he denies even knowing Jesus three times out of fear for his own life. Never made any sense to me. But it makes perfect sense now when you understand what was happening here. You see, all throughout Scripture, in the book of Ezekiel, in the book of Daniel, in the book of Acts, in the book of Revelation, when God revealed himself to people, what happened? They fell over. In Revelation 1.17, describing the divine revelation of Christ to him on the island of Patmos, John wrote, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. He blacked out. When Jesus reveals himself to these soldiers, 
They collapse to the ground. And if Jesus, simply speaking his own name, can knock a thousand hardened soldiers onto their backs, Peter must have felt invincible at that moment. And what a moment it was. You see, Jesus wasn't afraid of the thousand soldiers. He wasn't afraid of their swords or their torches or their armor. He wasn't afraid of anything that men could ever do to him because Jesus knew who he was. Jesus embraced the reality of his identity, and so must we. Yet again, it's easy for us to tell other people about his likable qualities, isn't it? About his popular character traits, even about his stand against the broken religious system of the day. But listen, Jesus isn't just a likable rebel who bucked the system. No, he said of himself, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 14, 6, he said, I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. John 10, 9. The Apostle Peter said, There's salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Acts 4, 12. The Apostle Paul said, There's one God, there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. Look, the New Testament writers cite messianic prophecies from the Old Testament more than 130 times. The Old Testament contains as many as 400 prophetic passages that describe who the Messiah is and what he would do for us. Honestly, what do you think the chances are, the odds, of all those prophecies being fulfilled in one person? The truth is the chances are so staggeringly remote that the possibility of it being mere coincidence is a complete joke. Jesus alone is the Messiah, the one and only Son of God, the only way to the Father, the only truth, the only light, the only salvation, the only one able to conquer death in the grave, the only one who can give us new life, the only one who could atone for our sins, and the only one worthy of our devotion and worship. Is it good and right to tell people about these true qualities of Jesus? Of course it is. But at the same time, we cannot ignore the true identity of Jesus because we're worried about sounding intolerant of other people's beliefs or religions. I told you this story last year when I made a new friend, a Muslim man who had asked me to meet with him once a week to help him with some issues he was dealing with in his professional and personal life. And I'd only known him a few months and just had begun meeting with him regularly, and yet God gave me a deep love and a deep concern for this man almost immediately after getting to know him. The last time we met, he asked me a question about my faith. To which I replied, listen, if Jesus is who he says he is, then what I believe means everything. But if he's not who he says he is, then what I believe means nothing. And then he probed a little further. And so I laid bare the gospel, my own desperate need for Christ in my life, or I wouldn't make it through my own struggles or survive the effects of my own sin, because Jesus is in fact the only way to salvation from the wrath of God that every single human being deserves. 
And after talking at length for some time, being the kind and gracious man that he was, he thanked me at the end of our meeting and told me that he was very much looking forward to the next one. A week later, he died. Listen, we dare not claim to love Jesus if we're not willing to tell people who he really is because any moment could be their last on this earth. You see, telling people the truth about who Jesus is, it's a reality we must embrace. Let's keep reading. And we're going to skip down to chapter 19, halfway through verse 16, and read through verse 19. This is after the torture and trial of Jesus as the soldiers now take him out to be crucified. John says, So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with two others, uh, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, uh, Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Now skip down to verses 28 through 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So even while dying an excruciating death, Jesus was still doing and saying everything required to fulfill the prophetic scriptures about himself. And in particular, he references Psalm twenty-two, fifteen, when in his final dying moments, he expresses his thirst. Because again, Jesus understood that everything that was written about the coming Messiah was written about him, which is why he not only embraced the reality of his death and the reality of his true identity, but look, Jesus embraced the reality of his resurrection, and so must we. You understand, even while dying on a cross, Jesus never for one moment doubted his own resurrection. Matthew describes the scene, chapter 27. Just before Jesus gasps his last breath, he cries out, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, which is Hebrew for my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's in Matthew 27, 46. I have to be honest with you, after everything that Jesus did, understanding who he was and the fact that he was not only going to die for mankind, but understanding exactly why. And I talk about this each year because of its profound significance. So many of you have heard this, but listen, I always thought it a bit anticlimactic that the Son of God, who with all of his wisdom and understanding, not just in general, but in that very situation, knowing exactly why he was there and what he was accomplishing by being there, and knowing full well and good that he was going to rise from the dead, it always felt like a bit of a letdown to me that he would spend his final breath questioning the Father. You know, when you think about people who are about to be executed and they're given a chance to offer their final words, at least those uh, who are in their right minds, you expect their deepest, innermost thoughts. You expect them to muster up the most profound and meaningful statement that they can give in that one moment. And it's quite interesting, actually, to read some of those statements that have been made by people who are about to be executed or on their deathbeds about to die over the years because you know that many of them have had a long time to think about what was about to happen to them. And indeed, some of those final words are very 
compelling, very deep, very thought-provoking. Some of them are quite profound. And so I guess I, uh, I guess I always sort of expected more of that from Jesus. He had plenty of time to think about what he would say in that moment. He knew why he was there. He knew that he would rise from the dead. And yet what I would read in Matthew always seemed more of a really sad expression of confused bewilderment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so for most of my life in church, I heard it explained that because Jesus was shouldering the sin of the world, that in some way in that moment, he had to be cut off from fellowship with the Father, and he couldn't fathom that, so he questioned the Father in doubt and confusion in that final moment of his life on earth. And again, just to be honest, that that always left me with a bit of a sense of defeat. Even though I knew that Jesus rose from the dead later and conquered sin and death, that, that moment of triumph over the grave at Jesus' last gasp always felt like a bit of a defeat to me as Jesus himself questioned the Father's absence. That's what I believe for most of my life, but the truth is there's so much more to what was actually happening in that moment than Jesus simply being bewildered by the Father turning away from sin. In fact, What was really happening was not at all what I thought, or what I was taught, which is at best an incomplete picture and quite possibly a total misunderstanding of that passage. You see, in the first century, the scripture that people had and knew was, of course, predominantly Old Testament scripture. And some of the most commonly quoted and well-known passages of scripture at the time among the Jewish people in general were the Psalms which of course are songs, right? The word psalm means hymn. These were songs that were sung and taught and quoted by God's people all of the time. And if you think about it, a really famous song from our lifetime, if you could imagine some song that everybody knows, right? Something that would be familiar to the masses. You can simply hear just that first line of that song and nothing else. And immediately you know what that song is, and you know what it's about. You know the message of that song. You know how it makes you feel, all just by hearing the first line of the song because you're familiar with it, right? It's like the old show, and I'm dating myself now. Name that tune. Does anybody remember that? Where they would play the first line of a song, and the person listening would have to guess the name of the song. And, of course, the more well-known the song, the easier it was to name the song. That's how songs and music work in general. The more you hear it, the more it stays with you to the point that just hearing the first line of a song can instantly recall the entire piece. So, for instance, if you hear someone sing, Oh, say, can you see? Right? Just by hearing the first line of that song. Everybody knows what that song is and what it's all about. You can even begin to feel the emotions that it stirs up inside of you and the grateful sense of wonder and awe for the victories won and the privilege of living in such an amazing country and all of that just from hearing the first line of that song. And the reason that matters is because Psalm 22 is one of those songs. One of the songs that was taught In Jesus' day, it is a well-known song that starts out as a great lament about suffering that happens to end in great victory over one's enemies. In fact, Psalm 22 was known at the time as a song about victory, even in the worst 
of circumstances, when it seems the whole world is against you, Psalm 22 was the ultimate cry of victory over the enemy. And again, this song of victory was taught over and over and over again and well known all at the time that Jesus was there hanging on that cross. In fact, we've already seen John point out that Jesus fulfilled Psalm 22:15 in his great thirst just before dying. And so if you would please put up the beginning of Psalm 22 in the screen so you can read the first line with me. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? You're getting the picture. As Jesus was dying on the cross, he wasn't using his final breath to express some kind of doubt or defeat or bewilderment with the Father, not at all. You see, as he felt his life slipping away with one final breath in his lungs, he cries out the first line of one of the greatest songs about victory over our enemy that had ever been written. Jesus was quoting a very familiar line to a very familiar song. He was making a statement to the world in that moment, both to those there that day witnessing his death and to everyone after who would ever read Matthew's account of Jesus' crucifixion, that in that moment, in the worst circumstances that anyone could ever fathom having to face, Jesus was claiming victory for all who would ever call upon his name forever. And then seconds later, that victory was won. Can you feel the gravity of the difference in that passage in Matthew now. From what seemed to be a sad statement of defeat to what is actually the greatest victory cry in the history of all humankind. Because Jesus knew what he had come to do. He knew who he was and he knew where he was going to end up. And so even in his dying, Jesus was living in the reality of his resurrection. And so there on the cross, with his final breath, he put an exclamation point on his coming resurrection by claiming victory over death. And then as we move to chapter 20, we see his resurrection become a reality to those who loved him the most. Let's read the first 16 verses together. John chapter 20, first 16 verses. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they've laid him. Right? They still don't get what's happened. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. They saw and believed that he was gone, that what Mary had told them was true. They still didn't understand what was happening with the resurrection. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, 
She stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and saw him and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani. Jesus was alive. But how? They saw him die. They saw him buried. They saw his tomb, yet there he was, as alive as ever. As the reality of that resurrection made its impact, beginning with Mary and then on the other disciples, it defined every single day of the rest of their lives. And from that moment on, everything changed. They could no longer hide the reality of who he was and what he'd done for them. They could no longer hold back from telling his story to anyone and everyone who would listen, even when that meant making people uncomfortable, even when that meant persecution, even when that meant suffering and death, because the reality of his resurrection fundamentally changed the reality of their own lives. To the point that every one of them devoted every day of the rest of their lives to boldly proclaiming what they knew to be true because they had witnessed it firsthand. And look, you could see maybe, maybe one or two of these guys losing their minds if, if Jesus had not actually risen from the grave. Maybe one or two of them and deciding to go start a new religion based on a lie. But all of them... Chuck Colson, who's now passed away, served as special counsel to President Richard Nixon from 1969 to 1973. He was known as President Nixon's hatchet man. And as many of you know, he gained notoriety at the height of the Watergate scandal. And ultimately, he pled guilty to obstruction of justice for his part in that political scandal. And he served seven months in federal prison. Colson later became an outspoken Christian in what was truly a radical life change for him. It led to the founding of the ministry called Prison Fellowship and then Prison Fellowship International, where he taught and trained people how to focus on a Christian worldview in every aspect of their lives, how to fearlessly uh, represent Christ to the world. He also went on to author more than 30 books, and the ones that I've read are outstanding. The point is this. Colson was a man who knew what it meant to be radically transformed by the truth of the gospel. And this is what he had to say about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have, not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is not just a story we believe in. It is a reality that we live in. 
And it should therefore define and dramatically transform every aspect of who we are and how we live our lives today, just like it did for those 12 men in the Bible. But imagine if after seeing Jesus alive and after touching him and after talking with him and after walking with him and after eating with him, imagine if after all of that, when those disciples were around other people, they pretended that none of it was true because they didn't want to make other people feel uncomfortable or they didn't want the reality of it to disrupt their own lives. So they lived like it never happened. No. That would be unthinkable. It's like us seeing our best friend or our spouse alive and well after they'd been dead for three days and then speaking with them and touching them and eating with them and living with them. But when other people were around pretending that none of it really happened, that would be unthinkable. Because the fact that this person was dead and is now alive would become our new reality. One that would shape every single day of the rest of our lives. Which is exactly what happened with his disciples then. And it's exactly how it should be with his disciples now. So just ask yourself. Is the resurrection just a story that I believe in? Or is it the reality that I'm actually living in day by day? Am I actively listening to his voice in my life every day? Am I literally following him, going where he leads me every day? Am I receiving what he's offering me every day? Or am I just living day by day under my own steam and my own ability? Because listen, if his resurrection, the fact that Jesus is alive and active in your life, always speaking and always leading and always giving, if that reality is not continually shaping your life each day, then maybe it's time you had a new encounter with the risen Christ. Because it's not just a story that you believe in. It is a reality that he is inviting you to live in. Let's pray.